Welcome back to the program. The war on terror that began on 9-11-2001 still goes on. The war in Afghanistan that began shortly after, and that was once dubbed the Good War, is America's longest war, and the landscape of that nation today does not reflect either the lives or treasure that Americans gave to that nation. Certainly war is always complicated. Once the battle is joined, the game plans often go out the window. Yet when one looks at the mistakes America made in Afghanistan, they were not so much about battle plans or strategy. They were a reflection of a fundamental misreading of history, culture, nuance, and the reality of human beings different than ourselves. In an interconnected and globalized world, that could be a recipe for repeated disaster. For doing what we did in Afghanistan only allowed us to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. My guest, Anand Gopal, spent years covering the war embedded with both American and Taliban forces. His reporting culminates in his debut book, just out from Metropolitan Books, No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. Anand Gopal, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. The story of 9-11 really begins for you as a very personal one. You were in Lower Manhattan on that day. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, that's right. I was in Lower Manhattan, actually across the street from the towers, and um, so I, I saw the attacks uh, firsthand, and I knew people who were killed in the attacks. And, uh, you know, that was, like for many of us, that really sparked my interest and fascination with uh, the Middle East and with South Asia. And so I followed the our war there in Afghanistan from afar for a number of years before I ended up moving there. And talk a little bit about going there when you went there and what you set out to learn. What did you think you were going to report on? Well, you know... Um, I this I had moved there in 2008, so this is still when the Iraq War was at its height. And uh, you know, I came to Afghanistan thinking that this was a good war, and uh, you know, this was a conflict that made a lot more sense to me than Iraq did, um, in the sense of why we were fighting it. And and so you know, I, I moved there with the with the idea of trying to uh, meet Afghans and trying to meet people from all sides to get their experiences of what this war felt like. You talk about how you you essentially dressed differently, grew a beard, and really tried to move unobtrusively among all the people. Well, yeah, when I moved there, I, I came there as a freelancer at first. I wasn't attached with any major uh, news organization. And so because of that, I couldn't afford hiring a translator or any of the other things you usually do when you come with the Bureau. So I was forced to adapt, and, and so... Pretty early on, I, I kind of moved around with Afghans. I, I grew a beard. I wore local clothes, um, and I, I learned the language fairly quickly because I was immersed in that environment. And doing that actually turned out to be a great blessing in disguise because I was able to have privy to points of views and, and lives that I never would have had otherwise if I had come with a major organization. Um, I spent time on a motorcycle, moving through the country and living in villages, and and meeting people whose views of the war were different than what, what I had initially thought. Different than what you thought, and also different than what Americans thought. And one of the things you talk about early on is what we didn't understand about the aftermath of the 10 years that the Soviets had spent there. Talk a little bit about that first. Well, I mean, it was striking how few Americans realize that the war in Afghanistan has actually been going on for 35 years now. Um, it started in 1979, when the Soviets invaded, uh, killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in that 
And our involvement in the country also started then, in 1979, when the CIA was backing Islamic fighters uh, against the Soviets. And many of the people that we backed then turned became the warlords of the mid-90s and of today. Um, and so that was a struggle, that was a fight that was still going on in, in, in some way at the eve of 2001, when the 9-11 attacks took place. And talk a little bit about the civil war that really grew out of the Soviets leaving in 1989. Uh, once the Soviets left, you had all of these uh, Islamic fighters who, who um, were warlords, essentially. And by that, I mean people who had uh, guns and, and money and controlled little pieces of territory. Uh, they all turned their weapons on each other. And so in the mid-90s, you had a pretty brutal civil war. Uh, Kabul, the capital, was reduced to rubble. Um, tens of thousands of people were killed. Uh, every day, going everyday things like going to the market could be could be deadly. You know, there were um, roads roadblocks set up, and they were uh, militiamen were plucking boys and and girls and women off uh, off of um, shared taxis, and they're being raped on the side of the road. I mean, it was a really brutal time, um, and the Taliban came about in many ways, as a response to this sort of civil war violence. Given the amount of time that the CIA had spent there, particularly during the Soviet invasion, why did we understand so little about the nuance of the country? One of the things you talk about is how we we really started to look at things in very Manichaean, very black and white terms, and that, that was a real problem. Talk about that. Well, I think that Manichaean worldview started from the policies of the 1980s, where really all that the, the main reason the CIA was involved was to kill Russian soldiers, was to kill Soviet troops. Um, in fact, there was a saying back in, in D.C. in the 1980s that we will defeat the Soviets even if it takes us down to the last Afghan. Um, and, and so that was the approach. And so what that meant is that we would support anybody who was effective in killing Soviet troops. And it, it did not matter... What their uh, worldview was, it did not matter if they were moderate or extreme. Um, and so we ended up backing some very extreme figures uh, to do this. And so it was sort of, I think, a willful ignorance um, because it was effective in the sense that the Soviets were defeated because we were um, giving weapons to these sorts of people. And when we returned after 9-11, in many ways we brought with us the same kind of Manichaean view of the world. People were either for us or against us. Uh, that's right. That this was the uh, guiding principle of the war on terror, and what that meant was that we would ally with all sorts of forces whose human rights record was just as bad as the Taliban that they had replaced. But that didn't matter um, at the time because they were with us, um, and so they all of a sudden became painted as the good guys. And and so they could, no matter what they did, they would remain the good guys. And this would be something that would eventually cause the insurgency to rise. Country. Talk a little bit about how that happened, how those specific mistakes really helped the insurgency and, and really allowed the insurgency to manipulate American forces in so many ways. Well, I'll give you an example. This is a prominent example in southern Afghanistan. Um, there was a tribal elder there named Birkat Khan, who um, he was one of the leaders of a very large tribe that had millions of members. And after 2001, he was very instrumental in getting his followers in his tribe and getting a lot of rank-and-file Taliban to, to switch sides and uh, join the Afghan government or to accept the authority of the Afghan government. Uh, he himself was elected 
to the Loya Jarga, which is the ground, Grand Council, which um, basically uh, supported Hamid Karzai in 2002. So he was somebody who was an American ally. However, he wasn't connected with the U.S. Uh, at the time, U.S. forces were working with warlords, and uh, the warlord they were working with in this area saw this tribal elder as a threat to his power. So he told the U.S. forces that this tribal elder was a member of al-Qaeda. So they raided his house late one night. They killed him. They ended up arresting the entire adult male population of, of the village, 55 people. Uh, they were taken to prison. Um, many of them alleged that they were beaten and, and tortured in prison. And if you go to this area today and you ask people, why are you fighting against the U.S. or why do people not like the U.S. forces, and they'll point to this, to this incident as a sort of uh, classic example of, of what, what happened. You talk about some incidents where there were some Taliban forces that wanted to surrender early on. Tell us about that. Well, that's right. In fact, the uh, the Taliban, from rank and file to the very leadership, had tried to surrender after 2001. Um, and they did this not because they all of a sudden became pro-American or, or peace-loving after, after the invasion, but this is really how Afghan history has functioned over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, when the Soviets left in 1989, a lot of the Afghans who had been communists switched sides and joined the Islamic fighters. Uh, and similarly, after 2001, a lot of the people who have been in the Taliban tried to switch sides and join the Karzai government or join the Americans. Um, they did this out of basically out of sheer survival. But what ended up happening is, again, because of this Manichaean worldview that you're either with us or against us, uh, the U.S. forces did not recognize those Taliban who had tried to surrender uh, as, as surrendering. And instead, they, a lot of these um, Taliban were arrested or they were driven out into Pakistan. And that's one of the main sparks that led the insurgency to regroup. One of the other things that engendered resentment that you talk about are the night raids and the civilian casualties. Talk about that. Yeah, in fact, uh, because of the alliance with, with warlords uh, in those years, there were very few actual uh, enemies that were, that were killed, in the sense that very few actual Taliban, pe- people who were fighting against the U.S., were actually killed in 2002 or 2003. Almost everybody who was killed or arrested were people who were either civilians or were, or were pro-American tribal elders. Uh, and this is because, again, the intelligence that was coming from the warlords that the U.S. had allied with. So there were numerous night raids, uh, numerous arrests of, of innocent people, uh, many of them sent to Guantanamo, many of them sent to Bagram Prison, which is the main U.S. prison in, in the country. Um, and this is something that the growing insurgency used to its own advantage because there was a lot of anger towards the Afghan government and towards the U.S. And so then, you know, the former Taliban figures would now come to these villages where there's a lot of anger, and they would say, look, the reason these guys are doing this is because they hate your religion. And so people would start joining the Taliban in that way. In in many ways, we were so manipulated, it seems, by information that was presented to us over and over again that wasn't accurate information, but it was presented to elicit a certain response, which generally had negative consequences. Uh, That's right. I mean, for example, let's say I'm a warlord and you have a piece of land that I want. Um, If I'm allied with the U.S. military, it's as simple as me telling the military that 
you are a member of Al-Qaeda. So they will raid your house, they'll arrest you, and they'll remove you, and then I'll be able to take your land. I mean, this is the sort of thing that was happening again and again um, in those early years, particularly. Uh, as I said before, uh, you know, I actually went through in the course of doing the research for this book, looking at some of the southern provinces and seeing who exactly was arrested and who exactly was killed in 2002. And I couldn't find a single person who was arrested or killed who was actually somebody fighting against the U.S. forces. It was almost to a man. It was, it was people who had been pro-American. Um, and pro Karzai government who were arrested. You tell this story, much of what we're talking about, through three central characters in this book. Tell us a little bit about those, Anand. So the three characters that I follow from 2001, uh, the first is a Taliban fighter, um, and he's somebody who was in the Taliban regime in the 1990s. Then he quit, just like all the other Taliban. He quit and he opened up a shop um, and tried to assimilate into civilian life. But due to the predatory behavior of warlords and the police and arrests, um, he ended up going back into the Taliban and became an insurgent commander against U.S. troops. Uh, the second uh, person I follow is a warlord, or a very prominent Afghan politician who worked very closely with the U.S. for many years. Um, and he was somebody who was, uh, I think, emblematic of the sort of false intelligence that we would get, because he gave a lot of false intelligence to the U.S. forces for his own ends. And uh, the third person I follow is a housewife named Hila, um, who was living in Kabul during the Civil War, and then she fled to the countryside. And much of the book is about her going to the countryside and trying to navigate between these two forces, between the Taliban on one side and the warlords on the other side. And and she becomes a senator at, at some point. Uh, at the end, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she, uh, it's a really a remarkable story because she has to go through a tremendous amount. She loses family members. Um, she uh, ends up becoming a, a single woman living in a village uh, where women don't have much rights, and she has to find a way to get out of the village, back to her home in Kabul. And um, you know, much of the book is about that journey. What was the influence and the impact of Pakistan in all of this, and, and their manipulation? Yeah, Pakistan's influence is pretty profound. Um, the Taliban insurgency's leadership exists in Pakistan. They're all there in Pakistan, and if Pakistan wanted to, they could arrest all of these people tomorrow. Um, they, they live and work openly in Pakistan. Pakistan is able to uh, influence the course of the insurgency um, by arresting certain people or by pressuring certain people. Um, so, in, in, you know, the insurgency would not exist without Pakistan's support. And um, Pakistan is a very malign actor. They've been a malign actor in the country for, for 30 years, and that's, that's continuing. How clear was it during the period that you were there, during the period you were reporting, how clear was it that we were continually making these mistakes we've been talking about? Should it, shouldn't it have been clearer to those American leaders on the ground, military and civilian both? Uh, it was surprisingly not clear to them. You know, um, I'll give you an example. I have a friend of mine who, uh, he was a, a prominent commander with the Northern Alliance, who were the, the, the group, the warlords that had the, the U.S. had backed in 2001 against the Taliban. 
uh, and he had been in the Northern Alliance. But uh, after 2001, he got ensnared in sort of rivalries with other pro-U.S. commanders, and he was a very pro-American commander. And so the pro-U.S. commanders uh, had the ear of the American military, and they accused this person, my friend, of being a member of al-Qaeda. He was sent to Guantanamo. And then he was released uh, a couple of years uh, previous, uh, a few years ago, and I used to go and see him. Uh, he, had a, he had a house uh, there in Jalalabad. I used to go visit him all the time. And um, he had a business, and he was you know, not involved in politics. And one day I found out in the news that his house was raided and he was killed, and uh, he was accused again of being an al-Qaeda mastermind who was kidnapping foreigners. I went and I spoke to a lot of people in the military and at the U.S. Embassy and I explained to them, this is just not true. You know, it was clear and you could find this out if you wanted to. But there was such a strong belief that once somebody was painted as a member of al-Qaeda or a Taliban, that must be the case. There was no sense that you know, intelligence could be wrong or that there could be a gray area there. Was there a tipping point? Was there a point that this might have been turned around and then it became absolutely too late? We had just made one too many mistakes. Yeah, I think by 2003, um, that's that's sort of the last, you know, last chance we had. You know, at the end of 2002, all of the Taliban leadership, all the people who are today uh, leading the insurgency, they got together in Pakistan, and they had a big debate about whether they should try to, to take up arms and fight or whether they should try one last time to try to cut a deal with the Karzai government and with the U.S. And so they actually voted to try to cut a deal. Um, but that initiative was rebuffed. And shortly after that, the the leadership gathered in the Pakistani city of Quetta and, and basically formed what became today the sort of the body that runs the insurgency. And once that was sent to motion and Pakistan started backing them. Uh, you had two entrenched sides. You had uh, guns and money flowing on both sides, and it became very difficult to undo the damage that we had done. What impact did Guantanamo have there in Afghanistan, the knowledge of what had transpired there? It actually had a very profound impact, and I would say that the existence of Guantanamo put the lives of American soldiers in, in great danger because, uh, you know, Guantanamo is notorious in the Afghan countryside for a place that is, you know, a place of inequity. It's a place where um, many innocent Afghans had ended up going. And I detailed the cases of many Afghans who were innocent who went to Guantanamo in my book. Um, you know, and it's something that stoked and, stoked and continues to stoke a lot of anger towards the U.S. Uh, US forces. Is it possible, looking at the situation on the ground today, to, to have a sense of what's next, to have any sense of, of predicting even what happens in the short run? Well, you know, it's hard to predict, and I'm sure any time we predict it, it'll, it'll turn out differently. But uh, I think you know, if you look at the situation on the ground today, you have the Afghan government, um, backed by the U.S. with millions upon millions of dollars, uh, in the cities and in, in, in the north. Um, in, then you have the Taliban entrenched in the deep rural south in the villages. And it seems to me that those two sides are going to continue to be, in, you know, it's not like the Taliban are going to march and take over Kabul, and it's not like the government's going to go in and take out the Taliban from the villages. What could the U.S. do at this point, if anything, to change any of that dynamic? 
One of the, the major problems, uh, why, and one of the reasons why the Afghan government is stuck in the cities is because the government is very weak, and in the countryside, the warlords who have independent relationships with the CIA and the special forces um, really hold sway, if not the Taliban. Uh, and as long as you have basically two centers of power, you have the warlords and you have the central government, the government's always going to be weak and the Taliban are always going to be able to exist and say, look, we're defending you against warlords and look, the government is weak and not able to do anything. So I think what needs to happen is we need to rethink the war on terror and stop funding um, warlords and strongmen just because they're able to kill Taliban and instead start funding the central government, um, start shifting away from uh, counterterrorism and towards state building, which really in the long run I think will be the most effective thing, uh, most effective way to actually fight against terror. Anand Gopal, his book is No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. Anand, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 